0: Thank you, everyone. Um, It's great to be here. I don't preach away very often, but if I do, I'm always um, reminded how uh, blessed we are to, work to share fellowship, even though we don't know each other very well. Um, so it's, it's really good to be here and uh, looking forward to sharing fellowship with you. Um, as we start our search, we uh, read a few verses from Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 1, and remind ourselves of all that the Lord uh, has done for us. So Ephesians chapter 1, in the first uh, 13 verses. Uh, familiar with, it, I'm sure. Um, But great work nonetheless Ephesians chapter 1 It says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ By the will of God To the saints who are in Ephesus And faithful in Christ Jesus Grace to you and peace from God our Father And the Lord Jesus Christ To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. They're familiar words, aren't they? But... um, Great words, aren't they? Uh, you know, we've we seen those first 14 verses that we're trying God, working in salvation. Um, God the Father has uh, called us, predestined us. Uh, God the Son has redeemed us. and um, God the Spirit has sealed us. And... Uh, is the guarantee of our salvation uh isn't it wonderful that you know we we do worship a true god uh three and one um, and they all work in our salvation so often we think of christ has saved us but they're all at work and uh, which is a great reason to praise and the, the refrain there is to the praise of his and we're going to God's word. We're going to later on we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter eight. Um, so let's read that now. Uh, Nehemiah chapter eight. So we're going to read the whole uh, chapter. That's eighteen verses. Uh, Nehemiah chapter eight. Says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him, at his right hand, stood Mathah, Shema, Aniah, Elijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshorim. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akib, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Maseiah, Kalita, Adariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book, from the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was also uh, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and uh, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountains and bring olive branches, branches of oil oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them, and made themselves booths, each one on the the roof of, of his house, or in the courtyards, or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel, had not done so, and there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly, according to the prescribed manner. Great. Well, if you can have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter eight, that's where we're going to be focusing our thoughts um, this morning. And um, when Rishi Sunak became a member of Parliament, he took an oath, that uh, not in the Bible. I uh, took a note on some Hindu text, I don't know what it was. Um, but then once, you know, all 650 MPs or however many there were, uh, they would have all really sworn on the Bible once upon a time. Um, but I, I believe the last, um, at the last election, it was only 378, just over half. Others swore on other religious texts like Rishi Sunak. And 160 uh, MPs decided that they didn't want to mention God at all. So they um, took an affirmed something. They didn't swear on anything. You see, the centrality of the Bible seems to be slipping away from government. And then if you look closer to home, earlier this year the general synod decided to go against the Bible's teaching on the same-sex marriage, supposedly in the name of the God of the Bible. So even churches across this land, even in most churches, there is a movement away from God's word. So what should our response be? Whenever there's a, a seismic shift, uh, in the world, I think we always should think: well, What should our response be? Is it something that we should be shifting with, or not? Um, and most of the time, it's not. But as we look at Nehemiah chapter eight, we will see what truly Bible-based living is like. In Nehemiah eight, we have: Well, the Bible is central. God's word is central. So we are jumping into the book of Nehemiah halfway through. So a quick summary so far. Um, so far in the book, Nehemiah has um, gone back to Jerusalem and his main job is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to create security in the city uh, for the glory of God. And actually the work has been completed. Uh, despite intense opposition in chapters 4 to 6, the walls were, were erected and the gates were hung and in record time them just 52 days. And um, that was without any recognized builders. If you read through chapter 3, uh, you'll see a list of the people who uh, took part in the work. And um, noticeably, there are no no ones named as a builder there. So God has done great things through Nehemiah, and he's helped them so far. Um, but Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, has got 13 chapters, so we are only really halfway through you might think once the rules have been rebuilt when Nehemiah's work is done there's no more to do um, but actually we, you know, we're only halfway through the book so a quick summary of the book but chapters 1-7 to seven is all about rebuilding the physical Jerusalem and then chapters 8-13 to 13 is all about rebuilding the spiritual Jerusalem showing the people of God what it means To follow God. What it means to live in God's way. What it means to worship amongst many other things. And arguably, this is Nehemiah's greatest work. Yes, he's rebuilt the walls, which was great, but actually, rebuilding the spiritual Jerusalem was a far greater work for him to do. And that's this second section of the book. And so we're jumping in right at the start. And it is significant that right at the start of the second section, we have this chapter, chapter 8, which is devoted to the centrality of God's word. And actually, the other five chapters, chapters 9 to 13, flow from chapter 8. So if chapter 8 isn't there, there would be no chapters 9 to 13. God's word has to be central. And that's really what we're going to see in... This, as we look through Nehemiah 8, God's word is central. Um, and there are three sections, really, so we'll go through each one separately, but the main message is, actually, God's word must be central in our lives. So, three ways we're going to see it. The first section, chapter, uh, verses 1 to 8, I've called it the preaching of the word. So verses 1 to 8, the preaching of the word. And what we have in these first eight verses is the whole congregation of Israel uh, gathering together to listen to Ezra preach. And they all gather, and Ezra stands in front of them uh, in a pulpit, so that all could see and hear him, and he reads from God's word. And he explains God's word. They listen to him preach. In other ways, they have a church service. And again, in this day and age, I think the preaching of God's word has been put on a level with every other part of a church service. But actually, the preaching of the God's word and the, the listening to the preaching, actually, what we're doing right now is the pinnacle of the church service because it is God speaking through his messenger, through the preacher, through the reading of God's words. So actually there's a reason why typically half of our church services are devoted to preaching and rightly so because it is the pinnacle. But when was it, when was the last time you heard um, someone complain that the sermon was too short? And um, more often than that is. oh actually oh, that sermon went on a long time, isn't it? You know, we complain that the sermon's too long. Um, and actually if the sermon was shorter, we'd think, well oh, that's good, I can have my lunch break. But, you know, we're very rarely complaining that the sermon is too short. More likely we're complaining that it's too long. You know, um, across the country I think we don't seem to value preaching. I was preaching in church in Leamington in July and usually when i preach I'm, preaching, I'm in for around 35 minutes, um, roughly, give or take. take, um, but for one of the first times uh, when I was preparing, I realized I prepared about double that length, um, so I had a long time the week before cutting down and it was a painful process, you know, oh, it's good stuff that I'm just cut, cutting out, um, and then eventually I got it down, but I still went over by about five minutes to preach for about 40 minutes. And what happened was, at the start of my sermon, I found myself apologising for the potential length of the sermon. I said, well, sorry about this, but, you know, it might go on a bit long. <laughs> I didn't quite say that. But, now, a congregation, they do have a, a, a standard length of what they're used to, and that's good, and uh, as a preacher, I should try and be um, thoughtful of that. But I did find myself a little bit disappointed that I couldn't show that I'd thought about from the passage in that week. Um, you know, I was thinking, well, oh, if only we had an appetite for an hour sermon. Um, I think that happened. Well, maybe I shouldn't have apologized for the length, but I was thinking, well, actually, I wish I could preach for as long as I wanted to. But here, actually, they preach all morning. You notice it's they met in the morning and they met until midday half a day of preaching so in this chapter what is it that shows us the importance of the preaching of God's word there are two things really in uh, in these first eight verses it shows the importance of the preaching and firstly verse 1 all the people were there it says all the people gathered as one man in the open square the first thing that shows us how important preaching is is that they made an effort to make sure everybody was there Okay, there was no one missing missing. so verse 2 says so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding everyone was there so they made an effort to make sure everyone was there it shows how important the preaching was but they didn't just make sure everyone was there but they made sure that everyone could hear and see and that there was no distractions so verse 4 it says Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose so they had gone out of their way to make make Ezra a pulpit Uh, why? well so that says Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people there was nothing hindering the people from seeing Ezra and therefore hearing Ezra and um, they ensured that there was minimal distractions ok now those were some distractions but they made as few as possible now I'm not sure what uh, you did here in lockdown but I'm sure you can remember it was hard to do church in lockdown is not it? I don't know if you did zoom or uh, live stream or I don't know what but when they are not in the same room as the preacher it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? You know, you sat, sat in your living room, the preacher's somewhere else, and you might see a cat go across your garden. If you, oh, there's a cat there. It, it, it just, it's easy to get distracted. But what they did here was they made sure there were minimal distractions. Everybody could see Ezra. There were no distractions. They made sure everyone was there. They made sure everyone could hear. And lastly, they made sure that everyone could understand. So verse uh, 7 lists various people who were with Ezra. And what were they doing? It says they helped the people to understand the law. They were there to ensure that people weren't just hearing, but they were understanding. It says them in verse 8, they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and gave the sense, and helped them to understand the reading. What a great description of good preaching, that is. Um, In the ESV, it translates the word distinctly as clearly. Um, So it says, they read from the book, the Lord God, clearly, and they gave the sense. And uh, there's a footnote on that word, clearly, uh, to suggest other possible translations. And uh, two other uh, possible translations it says in the ESV Clearly it could be translated with interpretation or paragraph by paragraph. Okay? And I love that, don't you? They read the words with interpretation. In other words, they explained the meaning of it. Or they read it paragraph by paragraph. In other words, they read it slowly enough to ensure that everyone understood. And then it says they gave the sense. They explained the big idea of the passage. What great preaching. No wonder they came back for more day after day. Now they had these types of services uh, for at least eight days running. You see that in verse 18. Quite possibly for more than 24 days running. If you look at chapter 9 verse uh, 1, is the uh, 24th day of the month. And they're doing the same. And as I've said already, they are long services. So chapter 9, verse 3, it says, For one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed. Half a day of these services. Long services, day after day after day. Because the preaching was important. Um, Lucy, my wife, often has a list of jobs for me to do around the house. And, and at the moment, on that list, there's things like hanging a couple of pictures, putting uh, build a bookshelf, and there's a few other things as well to fix a, um, a curtain rail. And um, the way it happen is that I will put those jobs off and off and off. Okay? And Lucy, I'm sure will be nodding along, um, because it doesn't really appeal to me. You know, I'm thinking of oh, drilling a hole in the wall to fix a curtain rail. Doesn't really appeal. Um, and what will happen is sometimes I'll, I'll find another job, which all oh, of that sounds like quite exciting, I and mean, I'll do that one first. Uh, but it's not going on Lucy's list. And the comment will be made, and rightly so, something along these lines, when you want to do something, you do it straight away. When you don't want to do it, it never gets done. That's true, isn't it? You know, when we, I will naturally give time to things that I enjoy doing, that I've got an appetite for, that appeal. But the things that don't appeal will be squeezed out. Where does preaching rank on your appetite list, as it were? Is it high? Is it the highest? Because actually, if it was the highest, we would make time for it. Now, you come on a Sunday, which is great. Um, But actually, through the week, how much time do we spend in God's Word? Is it, do we have an appetite for God's word? Only that we would have such an appetite as they did here. Uh, the example's been used before, that we're willing to sit through hours of our favourite film or sport, are only willing to spend 20 or 30 minutes listening to preaching. So, the preaching of God's word, they made it a priority. And uh, secondly, we see the preaching, we come to two things that God's word does. And the second, first, first of those things is that it provides. Uh, so, verses 9 to 12, I've called it the provision of the word. So, we've had the preaching of the word, verses 1 to 8. Verses 9 to 12, the provision of the word as you read those uh, four verses, you'll notice that the mood of the congregation changes drastically. So it starts with them in verse 9, mourning and weeping. And it finishes with them in verse 12, rejoicing greatly. They couldn't be much further apart, really, could they? Um, so what is it that happens in between that changes their mood? Well, in those verses, verses 9 to 12, we have what we call a chiasm. Um, Now, a chiasm is a form of poetic writing which is supposed to emphasize one particular truth. And the way it works is, it starts with the first and the last things in the list, and then it works in, second and penultimate, keeps heading until it gets to the central truth. Um, So the first and the last things are linked. The second and the penultimate things are linked. and so on and so on until you get to this one thing in the middle, and that is the emphasis. Um, so to help you understand, what, well, archaism, maybe think of a burger or a sandwich, okay, maybe from McDonald's if you would like McDonald's. Uh, what's the best bit of the burger? Well, it's the meat or the meat alternative in the middle, isn't it? Okay. Um, but that isn't it. You don't just go to McDonald's and say, oh, can I have a burger, and they just give you the, the meat. They give it you surrounded in other things. So uh, you, either side of the meat you might have some lettuce or tomato. Uh, and then go out some meat, you might have some sauces. Depending on how big the burger is, you might have some uh, bacon or something. And eventually you get to the bun. And uh, the best burgers are symmetrical. Okay, So they start from the bun and they work in. And the middle is the burger. But what's the purpose of all those other elements of the burger? Well, it's to enhance and draw our attention to the burger itself, isn't it? You know, so the bun, the salad, it's all to draw our attention to the burger. And that is what the chiasm is. So all these outer layers draw our attention to this middle truth, this emphasis. So how does the chiasm work here? And most importantly, what is the central point? We're going to work from the outside in. So you might not have to be in uh, verses 9 to 12 and look as you go. So the outermost layer, or the bun of the verb if you like, we have these two statements of the emotions of the people as a result of the word of God. So end of verse 9 says, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So as they heard the word of God, they wept. It led to mourning. Uh, just hearing the word of God isn't good news necessarily because you hear but don't understand. People hear of the holy God and sinful us. They hear of rules and regulations that they cannot keep. And that should lead to mourning. And mourning over our sin and over our state. You see, our natural state is one of hopelessness. And as we read the word of God, we see that we have fallen so far short of God's standard we find that we have time and time again broken the good law that God gives us we find that we are in desperate need of some intervention from God but we also find that we are completely undeserving that's what we get if we just hear God's word but the equivalent statement in verse 12 is and rejoice greatly there's the emotion because they understood the words that were declared to them Mourning turns to rejoicing because they not only heard the words, but they understood them. So just like hearing the words leads to mourning, understanding the word leads to rejoicing. See, understanding the word of God means that we understand all that I've just said, but that there is also a Saviour who has come, who has paid for our sin there is a saviour who has died in our place to reconcile us to that holy God understanding the word of God leads to rejoicing Uh, but what is it they have understood Well, that will come in the centre of the chiasm so we'll have to wait for that for a minute so there's the outer layer this emotion uh, brought about by something to do with God's word the next layer comes at the start of verses 10 and 12. And it's the command, this is verse 10, to go away, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Um, and then followed by the people doing exactly that at the start of verse 12. And really the command is to go and be nourished and to have sweet fellowship with one another. And those are good things, aren't they? And in fact, when we read the rest of the Bible, we see instances of when God says, "Actually, what you need is to be—you need to be nourished." Okay, so think of Elijah, and he's running away from Jezebel. The angel, uh, an angel, comes and bakes him bread, or bakes him a cake. He's nourished. Okay, he's he's in deep depression, and he's told to eat. So that's a good thing. And we know fellowship with the, one another encourages us, and it's a good thing. In fact, we're told to encourage one another. And um, Occasionally, on a Wednesday night, which is when we have our midweek meeting in, uh, in Leamington, um, I'm feeling tired and worn out from my day at work. And I you know, I don't quite fancy going out again in the evening. Okay, I'm sure there's some of you might feel the same sometimes. Um, but often, I have to remind myself that actually fellowship, meeting with other believers, is refreshing. And it always is. Uh, so I almost force myself to go out. And when I come home, I'm so glad I've gone. Because I've met with other believers. It is a refreshing thing. So is it the fellowship and the nourishment that is the turning point for the people? Not quite. We're not quite at the centre. This flows from the turning point. But not, it isn't the turning point itself. So, we've had... Uh, two layers, you have got another layer and then it's a central point, the next layer is the exhortation: do not sorrow along with the statement that this day is holy to the Lord so this is middle of verse 10 and verse 11 the day is holy uh, because it's the first day of the seventh month which means it's the feast of trumpets, so you can see that in Leviticus Leviticus 23 It says that the first day of the seventh month Is a holy day A day where no work should be done uh, But a day of memorial To the Lord And that's why they shouldn't sorrow Because Or shouldn't grieve Because they should be reminded of all the Lord has done And as we've already As we've already seen in in the book of Nehemiah God has done so much for them Over the last just couple of months He has helped them um, to build these walls, he's done so much it should be, this day should be a day when they remember all that God has done for them so is that the reason for the change of heart as we focus on God well we're getting closer, but not quite but here it is what particularly do they focus on what is the burger of our chiasm What is it that causes the people of God to go from mourning to rejoicing? It's not the physical strength of eating and drinking, but it's this. End of verse 10. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Probably the most well-known verse in Nehemiah is the central part of this section. It's the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's the joy of the Lord If that's all we need. that provides us with everything we need. It is more nourishing than the finest of foods. The joy of the Lord is sweeter fellowship than even the most united of believers. So our strength comes from the joy of knowing that through the Lord our sins are forgiven. And we don't have to mourn over sin in the same way. It is the joy of knowing, that the, Lord, of knowing the Lord personally and walking with him. It is the joy from knowing the Lord has given us a secure home. Not here, but in eternity. God had given the Israelites a secure Jerusalem. But he has given us a far more secure Jerusalem. And all of this has been one... Because the Son of God was willing to become sin for us so that we might be forgiven. Because the Son of God was abandoned by his Father so that we could know him. Because the Son of God left the security of heaven to win us heaven. That is what we understand through this book. That is who we know. The Lord is who we know through this book. But God's Word provides all we need. There is nothing lacking in it. So the challenge is, is God's Word where we turn to in all areas? Is it where we turn to when we're despondent? Is it where we turn to when we are wracked with guilt? Or is it where we turn to even when life is coasting by and you know, everything seems to be okay? Do we still turn to God's word to provide us with all we need? God's word, well it's the provision of God's word, is sufficient for everything. So we've had the preaching of God's word and the importance of preaching. We've had the provision of God's word and how it gives us all that we need. And then lastly, verses 13 to 18, we have the power of God's word. The power of God's word, verse 13 to 18. And actually this is the theme that's picked up through the rest of the book. So we've seen the importance of preaching, we've seen the provision of the word, and now we see the power of it too. And by that I mean the power to change us, to change our lives. The power to change our hearts first, and through that our actions. Now you might say that is the Holy Spirit's work, and it is, but one of the key ways that the Holy Spirit accomplishes this, is through the preaching of God's word, um, and in our passage we see a very specific change to the Israelites. So they they start then celebrating the feast of booths again. Now that is isn't relevant to us. Okay, we don't need to celebrate the feast of booths. But as you read through the rest of Nehemiah, you see later other times when they. Think of more specific things. So um, chapter 13, there's intermarrying, there's the Sabbath. The chapter 13 is a big one for it. I remember the Sabbath, intermarrying, and other things as well. So, although this particular example isn't as relevant to us, the point is that God's word has made a difference in their lives, it's changed them, and the principle is still there. So, uh, what I want to see is, notice the pattern uh, that we see here, verses 13 to 16 particularly. Firstly, verse 13, the people come to Ezra, and it says, in order to understand the words of the law. They were devoted to understanding it, much like Ezra was. So if you read Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, it says of Ezra, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek or study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra was devoted to understanding God's words. And that rubbed off on the leaders of Israel. So verse 13, they were devoted to understanding God's words. Do we have the same devotion to understanding God's word? And I'm speaking to myself here too, really. Um, When we have our quiet times or devotions, are we just reading God's words? Are we studying it? I remember when I was a teenager, probably about fifteen or sixteen, I was asked by someone in church um, what I was studying in the Bible at the moment. And I'm, okay, uh, and I replied, I said, "Well, this morning I read such and such. I can't remember what?" It was. Um, but to which he replied, "No, I didn't ask what you read or what you're reading. I asked what you're studying." And that really stuck with me, actually. Um, actually, when I do uh, come to God's Word in the mornings, am I just reading, or am I studying? That's what they did here. They studied God's Word. That's what Ezra did. So, first that they studied God's Word. Then, they found something in God's Word. So, it says, they found written in the law. What's happening here is they realised that something in their lives wasn't quite right because of what they were reading in God's Word. So they read something and they realised it didn't fit with how they were living. Um, And in their case, they probably read the command to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it might be similar for us. As we read God's Word, we might come across a command in God's Word and we think, actually, that's not how I'm living. I need to change. Now, I was thinking about this this morning. I think another problem with Christians is in this day and age is, we know that some things in the Old Testament don't apply to us anymore. But we, whenever we come across something that causes us to change, we think, well, maybe that doesn't apply to me anymore we just brush it off and think, actually, no, that's that was for a different day and age, that was contextual. We're very good at saying that, aren't we? But actually, and sometimes it will be, but actually when we read God's Word and we see something, we think, oh, that's not how I'm living, whether it is contextual or not, we should be thinking, actually, does this apply to me? And if we're not sure, we need to look at it, because if, we, if it does, then we need to change and that's exactly what they do here they come across something and think actually that's not how I'm living they found something they're going to stumble across it in God's word so it could be for us a command it could at the same time be just something about God that surprises us you see, I did not know God was like that that surprised me now well, that should lead us to praise him so they studied they found, and then, verse 16, then the people went out. Next, they, without hesitation, change because of what they have read. They see their lives aren't as they should be, and they changed, in this case, instantly. They said, actually, we need to celebrate the Feast of booths, the Feast of the Seventh Month. And let's be honest, it may well have been very inconvenient for them. So, they lived on their rooftops or in their courtyards or in the court of the Lord. They weren't living in their newly built houses on, on the walls. Inconvenient, but they did it. Actually, when we read the Bible, it can be inconvenient for us. Because we'll come across things and think, oh, I'm quite comfortable as I am. I don't really want to change. And it can be inconvenient. But how often do we sit down when we read the Bible expecting to be rebuked? How often do we pray before our quiet times, Lord, show me my sin in your word today. Show me when I'm not living right. These people desire to live God-honoring lives So they changed after reading his word. And it might not be such an instant change for us, but we should be praying for the Holy Spirit's help Mm -hmm. to change. And actually, as a result of this, there was great gladness, gladness, and even more of an appetite for God's word. They carried on hearing it throughout the Feast of Booth, verse 18, uh, the preaching and studying of God's word has power to radically transform lives. It's what it does here, and it's what it still does today. So, when the world around us is moving away from God's word, what should our response be? When they're casting it aside, we need to cling more closely to it. We need to hold it closer. We need to cherish it more. How much do we value the book that we are holding it is God's word do we hunger to hear from it and for it to change us um, I'm sure some of you may have heard of the story of Mary Jones um, this Welsh girl who saved her money for 6 years to buy a bible in her language and then she had to walk 26 miles barefoot to buy it and she did it because she loved God's word. What a challenge that is to us, when sometimes we struggle to get out of bed in time to have our quiet times. Mary Jones walked 26 miles to get God's word. So, God's word should be central in every area, in our church services, in our lives. It needs to be central, even when others are deserting it. It should be central. For us. Let's uh, sing as we play. We're going to sing in the 572. O oh Christ in thee my soul hath found and found in me alone. And really it's picking up on that middle point that God's word provides all we need. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy Lord Jesus found in thee.